Welcome to the Project Fitness Podcast for fitness professionals and fitness enthusiasts who want to be better at life. Fitness is the greatest investment of anyone's life. However, it's not easily obtained, and anyone who says different is just plain wrong. Join award-winning personal trainer and strength conditioning coach Chris Fudge every Monday as he explores all aspects of fitness that can lead you to your optimal health. Good day, good day. What's going on, Chris? How much, Sean? How you doing? I'm good, man. Good. Can't complain. Yeah. How'd the game? Can't complain. We lost a close one yesterday, unfortunately. Oh, shitty. Yeah, two close ones back to back, but um, had my career high, so I guess that's a good uh, that's a good part. And yeah. body seems to be holding up. Is is that tough for you? Like when you if if you have an L, but you have a great game, are you always like, yeah, it sucks, but I'm okay with it? Versus you know, like, hey, you lost. It doesn't it doesn't matter if you played well or not. Yeah, it, it really is tricky. I think it it depends on like the consistency of it, right? Like, if it's something that lasts all year, it really does feel bad. If it's just like a one off game, it's a bit of a different story. But that's definitely something that's talked about. It's like, oh, that's that's a guy who'd rather score thirty and lose than score ten and win. And I like to think of myself as a guy who'd rather score ten and win, be a part of a winning program. Because at the end of the day, that's the goal, right? With team sports, it's like 100%. trying to win the game. You're not trying to score thirty points. So it's uh basketball so yeah right it's just like football and i know you played so you get it everyone's got got a role but in basketball Mm -hmm. just give it to lebron right like we're not gonna (laughs) yeah man yeah and that's something i'm learning lately too like on the pro level like it's even more about individual stats for a lot of guys especially import players right who are trying to you know move up to better leagues or whatever it is it's like it's it's a very selfish game compared to football and uh it could it can really take the fun out of it in, in a lot of cases, um, it is something I miss about football where it's, there's a lot of camaraderie and everyone has their job and you can't really step outside of your job to do something selfish where in basketball, it's very easy to do that and, and to get away with it sometimes too, depending on the coach. So it's, uh, yeah, it's something I miss about football and, and it's something that's not always the case. Like with some good basketball teams, you know, you're a very cohesive unit and everyone knows the role and everyone's acting within the role and you're trying to win the game every game. But, uh, even on some of those teams, like for example, uh, like with the University of Ottawa, it's like half of the games we play, we know we're going to win by twenty. Yeah. So guys are in a completely different mindset in those games versus you know when we go up against Carlton, it's like okay, we're trying to win this game. So guys are playing very differently than when we're playing some of these these lower tier teams. So it really depends on the game too. Yeah, well, it's nice to see that sports are happening somewhere, right? Yeah, man, I've been following what's going on and. In Ottawa, obviously, it's pretty shitty. Um, but hopefully, uh, hopefully things are going back to normal slowly but surely here. Yep, fingers crossed. Um, mm-hmm. So, so, so for today's uh, kind of episode, I sent you a couple like uh, talking points, uh, some discussion stuff. There, you're okay with all that? Yep. Yeah, I saw it. I got a few notes in case I need them here. And uh, yeah, that's all. That sounds good to me, man. Yeah. And if you listen, I'm down for whatever. Yeah. If you listen to any of the episodes, it's very much like it's uh, you know, be who you are, talk how you want to talk, say what you want to say. Nothing gets really edited out here and and that's what i found. just like to hear people kind of yeah i i i read the reason why i'll just let you know like the reason why i didn't know you i don't know you i didn't know you and then we were doing the ben thing together and then i was like oh yeah this guy's in ottawa he does some physio so so i was like trying and then turns out i know a lot of people that know you right like yeah man we definitely have a lot of mutual friends yeah 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 and they're like yeah this guy was like a stud baller and i'm like what do you mean and then there's like like a a dual cis athlete i was like shit i like I don't know anyone who's done that. Right. And that's, yeah, that, that was, that's impressive to hear that. And then also the fact that you went through like some serious injuries. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. 
that's kind of like where I'd, I'd like to kind of start off and go with that is you had some serious injuries and then I tell you, you take care of yourself. And then, and then now you're, now you're a pro hooper. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, man. It's been, it's been a long journey for sure. Like I think I might've had the longest U sports career ever. <laughs> think about it. Like it was, I started in 2011 and I went all the way until 2020. Basically we had nationals with Ottawa U right when the pandemic hit. So that's, basically nine years. I don't really know anyone who's played college sports that long, but I had people who were always telling me like, yo, it's the best days of your life, make them count. And uh, I would get eligibility back from a couple of my injuries. I ended up sitting out a couple of years, took a year off from between my degrees. And then uh, at Ottawa U, we were hosting nationals my last year. So I was like, okay, I might as well go back for that because we got an automatic bid to nationals. So it only made sense. Um, and, and I hadn't come back from an ACL injury yet at that point. So it, uh, it's just funny how things worked out, man. And um, let's, just, let's just rewind. We're, we're recording. We're just going to keep going with this, and I'll make the, the right adjustments. You played cool. CIS football and yep. CIS basketball, and you yep. somehow played for nine years. Yeah, man. So I'll start from the top here. So out of, out of high school, I was, I was a heavily recruited basketball – I shouldn't say I was a heavily recruited basketball player because I was only recruited by a few schools. But I like to think I was ranked one of the top 10 point guards in Canada uh, coming out of high school. So I was part of the Carleton University farm team, the Ottawa Guardsmen. So generally speaking, when you're one of the better players for the Ottawa Guardsmen, a lot of the other college coaches don't mess with you because they just assume you're going to go to Carleton. So I was recruited by them. I was recruited by James Duran at Ottawa U at the time. He was coming into his first year as coach there. And then I was recruited to Acadia as well. And I was playing high school football as well. I'd been playing for a couple of years at the time. I uh, was basically playing because a lot of my friends were playing. and It was a lot of fun. And, and my dad played too. My dad played uh, for the Ottawa Rough Riders for six years in the 1980s. And I always wanted to try my hand at football because I felt like it suited me a little bit better in terms of stature as an athlete, being a shorter guy, that kind of thing. So it always looked like fun. And all my friends were playing. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to play in high school. I played a year of Bell Warriors as well organized. So uh, I did that and I wasn't recruited out of high school for, for football, but the basketball coach at Acadia kind of used the fact that uh, they had a guy at the time at Acadia named Eli Procknow, who was both playing both basketball and football. And the, uh, the basketball coach at Acadia was like, he's thinking like, okay, how can I steal this guy away from, from Carlton, right? Coming out of high school. So when he was recruiting me, he said, Hey, you know what? You can also try out for our football team and you can play two sports. Like we have a guy who's currently doing it. So right away, that was really exciting for me. Just the, the challenge and the opportunity to, to try and compete in two different sports and, and kind of what I would become in the process of pursuing those goals too, was definitely a thought process I had at the time um, because I was confident that I could do it, but I wasn't sure. You know what I mean? Like there was definitely some uncertainty and, and that was exciting for me. So I, uh, I went out for a visit at Acadia, got to meet the football coach, uh, got to meet the basketball coach, got to meet every, like to see the campus and everything. I had a, did you guys all go, for, did you all go for lunch? I just pictured you and two coaches and they're both trying to pull you in one direction. And you're like, Oh, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. So it was just, it was more of a basketball recruiting trip than anything. So he set it up and everything like that. And I was with him for the most part. And I got to meet the football coach briefly. And he was actually the basketball coach at Acadia before uh, he was the football coach at Acadia. So there's, there's so many things that just worked, it, worked out in my favor that all this stuff wouldn't have been possible otherwise. So that was one of them. 
uh, Jeff Cummins, who was the uh, U Sports Football Coach of the Year at least twice now. And uh, he was a great mentor for me, and he was really supportive of me throughout all those years. And I can't, I can't thank him enough. He's he's been one of my favorite coaches ever. And uh, yeah, so I was essentially a walk on to the football team because. I mean, I wasn't recruited by them. I actually remember so at a at our high school all star game because I was an all star for uh, both basketball and football in Ottawa. And there's a lot of guys from from Ottawa who are going to Acadia for for football. It's they have some some kind of recruiting links there. And I remember walking off the field after the all star game. I didn't have a great game. I wasn't necessarily a huge standout. And I just remember making eye contact with one of the Acadia coaches who were there. Yeah. And he just didn't know who I was. <laughs> I just kept walking and, uh, and he, he didn't stop me or anything like that. And they had sent a, uh, an old lineman to come watch me play earlier in the year just to see like, if they're going to waste their time or not, that kind of thing. And, and I guess the old lineman was like, Hey, yeah, this guy's good enough to let him give him a shot at training camp. So um, yeah, they had guys like after I'd already committed, they had football coaches who were calling me saying like trying to recruit me. I was like, man, I'm, I'm already committed. Like I'm coming to school. Don't worry. Um, I had committed relatively early in the process in about November after I'd gone to the school and seen the campus and met everyone. Uh, they had a pretty bright future, both in terms of the basketball team and the football team. And that's something that was important to me. I wanted to be a part of winning programs and have a shot at winning two national championships. And, uh, I wanted to be the best two sport athlete in Canada. That was my goal. And, uh, I do think I accomplished that goal in hindsight, which I'm pretty proud of. And I, uh, yeah, I can't say I would have done it any differently. Well, I, I, I think it's safe to say that you are amongst a, a very, very small group of people who are able to, to do that. Uh, being in Canada, going into a, a secondary schooling, being recruited to play a sport, like the expectations are you're all in. And you had to be all in, in in two separate sports with the expectations of let's win a championship at the same time. From a mental standpoint, how tough would that have been? Yeah, it definitely had its difficulties, particularly from a basketball standpoint. Like I would miss the preseason with the basketball team because I was with the football team. How it worked was I would basically spend all my time in August, September, October with the football team. And I was kind of, it was up to me to spend my, to train by myself for basketball. I wouldn't participate in the basketball practices. There was one time when I did participate in the basketball practice and my football coach ended up walking in and seeing me and he wasn't very happy about that. So that was the last time that happened. But um, that was kind of how it went is I would, I would play football during football season and then I wouldn't train with the, with the basketball guys. And then during basketball season, I would play basketball and I wouldn't train with the football guys. And then in the, in the off season was when it got tricky because say in, uh, in March, when both seasons are now in the off season, I had, I couldn't necessarily, I didn't have an allegiance to either team. I was with both. So I had to do both work off season workouts and that kind of thing, as well as study for exams. So that was when things got tricky. and. Uh, it was easy once school was out because I was back in Ottawa doing my own thing and I didn't necessarily have to, uh, have to report to either teams and stuff like that. But, uh, but yeah, man, it was difficult. Like it was definitely more common, I think in the sixties and seventies for people to play two sports for whatever reason, maybe because sports specialization is a little more common these days. And, yeah. You should, uh, just, other... you should just take the athlete and say, okay, you can run fast. You can play these three sports, <laughs> you know, you're big and heavy. You could play these two sports, right? You just, the, the, the look of the individual would fit the sport, but like you just said, with, with specificity now, everyone says, well, I'm hyper-focused on one sport. I, I would just be more curious about how did you, how did you train? 
how are you going to train for, if you're all in football, then you're not touching the ball. Like how are you still keeping your skills up for basketball and vice versa? Like how did you manage those two things? Yeah. So great question. And I definitely learned something over the course of that when it came to basketball and not only through the breaks with football, but also through the breaks with my injuries is that if you have put in enough time in the past, like your brain remembers these skills and it, it is able to catch up very quickly. Like I've gone through periods of time, not touching a basketball for three months up to like six months and get my skill back. Real, like I'm surprised how quickly the skill comes back. You know what I mean? I'm surprised how quickly the shooting touch and all that comes back. Like there definitely is a little bit of a drop off, but not even close to what I would have anticipated. I think a lot of it is, is honestly mental. Um, it's pretty psychological. We kind of psych ourselves out like, Oh, we haven't played in this long and I'm not going to play well. I'm not going to shoot well. And, and I just don't think that's true depending on how much time you've put in. Like I put in a lot of time doing basketball skill work from the age of probably, you know, eight years old up until 18. And I really had laid the groundwork like neurologically, I think that I could take these breaks for months at a time and I could come back and not really miss too much. Um, in yeah, terms I, of it's not like you weren't doing anything, like I got buddies <laughs> take the summer off. They don't, they didn't touch a ball and then they got to go to camp in September. And, oh, I'm out of shape. Well, well they're out of shape. You were still training just for a different sport. Yeah. Yeah. So there was definitely little differences, but I mean, in terms of basketball and football, they're not too different, right? Like I would spend off seasons and at least in university trying to put on muscle mass my first, my first couple of years. So I came in, you know, I'm about 5'11", 175 pounds. And my body actually held up pretty well the first year. I wasn't playing a ton in football. I was, you know, I made the team and I was dressing for games, which was which I was pretty proud of. There was only a couple guys who were first year players who, you know, made the dress roster, but I was, you know, I was watching from the sideline for the most part. So I wasn't necessarily getting very banged up mm -hmm. and, and then, you know, made it through the basketball season, played a lot of minutes there, started a point guard, felt pretty good after the season ended and had a really good off season of training. I was working with uh, a guy named Kelly Baguette. He's a, uh, he's a trainer from the States and he's a guy I had been working with online for, for a couple years. Mm -hmm. So he would send me his programs and I would do them at the local YMCA under Scotiabank um, with one of my best friends, Chris Leakes, who, uh, who wasn't necessarily a, uh, a college athlete, but he was just my best friend and he was always into training and bodybuilding and stuff like that. So we would go pretty hard, uh, you know, from eight to 10 PM most nights. And uh, that was a lot of fun. I still really enjoyed those workouts and put on a lot of muscle mass. Like I definitely put on at least 10 pounds that, that one off season, the first time that we had that four month, uh, four month summer, right. Cause usually in high school, you're used to a two month summer, but, mm -hmm. uh, so I spent, uh, spent time putting on just trying to get stronger, bigger and stronger and, and more athletic for football and definitely did. I think when I came back, like I wasn't weak coming into university, I think, but relatively speaking, like I could, I could bench 225 a couple times, which for my size wasn't bad. Um, but when I came back, you know, that from the start of my second year, I think I could bench 275 for three. Um, which was a big improvement from where I was at. Yeah. And um, my football coach, or sorry, my basketball coach <laughs> wasn't too impressed, I guess, with how much muscle mass I'd put on because obviously he wants me to, to train a certain way. And he thinks that I haven't touched the ball all off season, where, whereas I'd just been lifting weights and thinks it's going to affect my basketball. And I think there is some truth to that to a degree. If you do put on a ton of upper body muscle mass and you don't maintain your mobility, and the shoulder girdle, I think, yeah, that can have an impact. 
Um, but I think largely speaking, I think it's a little bit of a myth that, you know, you're going to put on too much muscle and get muscle bound. I think a lot of times. Yeah. I mean, even more muscle- just 10 pounds, 10 pounds in four months, people think that might be a simple, that's a hard thing to do. Like, like you, you 10 pounds in four months is saying that you can put on about 30 in a year, right? That's a lot, but especially like if you're a lean person to be able to do that. So kudos to you to be able to put on 10 pounds in that type of duration. Um, but at the same point, you were conditioned. You didn't put on 10 pounds of fat. And I, right. I, I and that's a huge difference. Sometimes people say like, my weight went up, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, you put on four pounds of fat, maybe six pounds of muscle. That fat's not going to make you a better athlete. That's going to be a hindering effect. But if you can literally put on 10 pounds of muscle, you're going to be stronger. So everything you want to do, you're going to be a little bit better at, especially if you're undersized for football, then you can absorb impact. You're more robust to injuries. Um, so, I, I, so, so good for you for putting on 10 pounds in that short duration. Yeah, man. It was, uh, like I said, it was a fun summer. Just, uh, just, just, it was just being consistent, like with the workouts, you know, definitely training, not every day because, you know, you need, you need that rest and recovery, but for sure, probably four or five times a week of, of legitimate, like heavy weights and, and going hard too with those weights. Like I wasn't, wasn't messing around. I was definitely like pushing my numbers and things like that. And, uh, and then getting in the running and the basketball on top of that as well. So staying conditioned and, uh, that's when I had my first initial injury though. So that off season, I had an ankle subluxation in my left ankle. So just a partial dislocation where my talus kind of came in and out a little bit. I, uh, I was actually playing football, doing just some one-on-ones and went to break up a pass and stuck the landing on my left ankle. And just on the landing, I could feel it shift right away. And it wasn't a big deal. At least I didn't think so. Right. You know, um, kept training through it little bit of pain didn't think much of it uh but that's something that came back to bug me i i re-injured it in training camp my second year and i think i i subluxed it again i had a, i felt another shift in the talus when i went to make a tackle on one of my teammates and sorry i'll just cut you off there just someone's yep. listening right now i know that uh, the thought process might come up when you're talking about a sublux this is a partial dislocation of the ankle correct yeah yeah that's right so yeah, you got your talus bone kind of like sitting in the middle of your ankle if you got your tibia and your fibula here. And it slides and glides with the ankle. And sometimes it can just come out a little bit out of alignment if, you're, if your ligaments or tendons aren't stable enough mm-hmm. or strong enough. So that's happened to me on, uh, yeah, on multiple occasions. And it set me up for my first major injury. Um, you know, so just to backtrack a little bit had that second subluxation to start my second year at Acadia playing football. And I, and I played through it the whole year. I never really recovered though. It's something that, you know, you could play through, but, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't hundred percent. And, and my thought process at the time was like, Hey, that's okay. Let's like, you can still perform. You can still do what you need to do. Let's get through the season and then get through the next season. And then you'll recover in the off season. Um, but I, I just think it, it really took me a lot of time to recover that off season. And I don't know if I ever did. That's when I first discovered Kelly Starrett and read the supple leopard after my second year at Acadia and, and spent the whole summer on the East coast, just living by myself. Actually, I shouldn't say the whole summer, about half the summer, two of the four months and just really spent time trying to rebuild my body because after my second year of playing where I was starting at cornerback, mm-hmm then my body really took a toll. I had, uh, I had a lot of minor injuries and bumps and bruises that, that added up 
And, uh, and I was really trying to spend that off season trying to rebuild. And I thought I felt okay to start my third year, but you know, about two weeks into the season uh, during a practice in September, I, uh, I dislocated that same left ankle that had previous subluxations. So a full dislocation now where my ankle is literally pointing in a direction that I've never seen before and uh, fractured my fibula bone and tore basically ruptured all the, all the main ligaments, particularly the medial deltoid ligaments. So, uh, how did that, that was a, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. What, what were you doing? Yeah. So I was playing cornerback in practice at the time and, uh, we were doing cut coverage. So my back's to the sideline and there's a receiver who's running an out route and I come down and make a play on the ball and break up the pass. And I do break up the pass most importantly, <laughs> but, uh, I, I basically, my, my ankles caught. And I think, you know, the turf, not the specific turf at Acadia, but I think the turf does play a role where your foot can get caught mm-hmm. more so than in grass, for example. And I had some contact in my upper body at the same time where I was breaking up the pass and just the, the combination of those two things, there was an external rotation of the ankle along with the contact to the upper body. And, uh, I mean, I could, you could hear the, the snap of the fibula bone. I could, I could hear it and feel it and people watching, could, you could just see the, the leg break and, and pointing in a different direction. So when I'm, yeah, Conor McGregor when I'm break, like, um, I think foot flopping off there. Yeah. So it was, it was more like Dak Prescott's than Conor McGregor's, um, or Gordon Hayward's. If you've seen, uh, seen Gordon Hayward yeah. dislocate his ankle. Yeah. yeah. But mine didn't last, or at least the, the gruesomeness of the scene didn't last too long because I went down and then I kind of rolled over into a different position. And then my ankle, there was a huge shift I felt and it, and it just went back into alignment. Mm-hmm. So when the therapy staff came up, it wasn't necessarily super obvious that I dislocated it, but uh, they did all the, the fracture tests and everything. And by the time I got to the hospital, like an hour later, it was full on like a watermelon. Sure. And, uh, and yeah, I had surgery the next day and uh, they put in a plate on my fibula about probably 10 or 11 inches and a bunch of screws through that to, to realign the fibula. And then they put what's called a syndesmotic screw through the entire ankle joint and uh, just to, to realign it. And they stitch back up my medial deltoid ligaments as well. And they don't do the syndesmotic screw anymore. So this would have been in 2013. Mm-hmm. And nowadays they put in, they put in a tight rope to try to re- realign the ankle rather than putting a screw through. So I had the screw in there for, I think about 12 weeks. And then went back to the hospital and they, uh, they cut the cast off and they literally took a screwdriver. I took a video of this because you're only on a local anesthetic. So you're still awake. So I literally had my phone out, taking a video of my surgeon having a screwdriver and, and he couldn't find the screw originally, like he couldn't get a hold of it. And I was like, oh no, this thing is stripped. Like we're not getting it out. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, he eventually gets it, unscrews it, and it's a little bit bent too, right? So that, that's why I think they've moved on to different surgeries because you run the risk of, you know, if you're if you're weight bearing on it too much or whatever it is, um, mm-hmm. you can break you can break that screw in, in the middle of your ankle, and that's that's obviously bad news. So um, had that screw out, and then they say you can leave the plate on the fibula for the rest of your life if you want because it's not going to affect your range of motion. But uh, for me, and for a lot of other people too. It's, uh, it can be troublesome. It can be painful. I think it can restrict some of that gliding motion that the fibula needs to access full dorsiflexion. And I noticed I was definitely lacking some of that dorsiflexion, um, even up to a year later. So I played my full 
senior season, I made it back for my senior season at Acadia. And, and that was really a big, a big, just that, that injury was a life-changing experience for me in a lot of ways, because I felt like I could have done a lot of things differently to prevent that from happening. Mm-hmm. I didn't, uh, you know, there's people around you who, who want to be compassionate with you and empathize and, and tell you like, Oh, it's a fluke. It's not your fault. But I just knew like I had done some things that either like, like just consistently over time that just weren't the right things to do in terms of not taking care of my body, in terms of going out and partying in terms of playing through pain. And maybe I should have sat out in terms of not being as diligent with my, with my training in terms of not acquiring the knowledge that I could have that might've prevented me from being in that position in the first place. So I tried to take full responsibility for the injury and say, Hey, if I gotta, I gotta take responsibility for this and I can't let this happen again because, you know, I'm not only letting myself down, but I'm letting both my teammates down on both teams. And uh, that's not something I wanted to do. So I, uh, yeah, I, I made the decision to to spend the whole summer out when Wolfville. I was living by myself. I had no internet. Wolfville. Um, yeah, that's right. Out in Acadia. And uh, yeah, man, I just spent the summer trying to rebuild my body at that point and really made the, learned a lot about foot and ankle health at that time, just naturally, right? Um, because of the nature of the injury, learned a lot about the lymphatic system and icing and made some changes there that weren't necessarily popular um, in terms of. Were you using the ice? So no, um, I wasn't. So at the time, so this is 2013 when I get hurt. Right. And this is a time, I don't know if you're familiar with Gary Reno. He's a, uh, he's the guy who kind of popularized the, the anti-ice movement, if you will. And I remember at the same, around the same time when I discovered Kelly Starrett, I watched a video of him with Gary Reno at the CrossFit games, might've been the 2012 or 2013 CrossFit games. And they broke down, you know, ice and why it might not actually be advantageous to the healing process, but might actually slow it down. And that was obviously, you know, counter narrative to what I was learning in school in kinesiology and to what every athletic therapist would tell you. But, uh, I remember emailing Gary and I was like, Hey Gary, just had a pretty significant ankle surgery. Like curious what you think. And he, he emails me back right away with his number and he goes, Sean, call me. So I was like, okay. I can, can believe it. You know what I mean? I think it's just a testament to Gary and how, uh, how just how nice he is as a guy and, and trying to get information out there. So give Gary a call. He breaks it down for me. Tells me about the lymphatic system. I get his book called iced. I read it. At that point, I'm like, okay, this, this makes sense to me. So I bought a, I bought a muscle stimulator, a neuromuscular stimulator in Halifax. And nothing has, I've never seen anything work as well to reduce swelling as a neuromuscular stimulator. Really? Nor, like Normatec boots have come close mm-hmm. in certain situations. But uh, in terms of my ankle, like my ankle was swollen for at least a year following surgery consistently. And the, the muscle stem, I'd strap it on. I put a pad under my foot. I put a pad on top of the foot. I put a pad on the BMO and I put a pad behind the knee. And then I'd wrap my, my leg with a tensor bandage. I'd elevate it. And I'd use the muscle stem for about an hour after I trained. So I'd, you know, I'd train in the morning, 
I'd maybe use it before too, just to flush the leg so that I could access a little bit more range of motion in the ankle. But then, you know, the ankle wasn't healed yet. So the body was consistently sending fluid to the area to continue to try to heal it. So I train, I come back, I'd muscle stim it again for an hour, boom, ankles flushed, no more swelling. Allows me to train again throughout the day rather than just having a swollen ankle that I can't really operate on. The muscle stim actually allowed me to get in a lot of quality rehab. And sometimes I think people don't use it with enough volume. Like for example, 20, 30 minutes might not cut it, but one, two, three hours, then you're going to see a big difference. Mm -hmm. So that was something that I really learned about at the time. And, uh, it was something I had some conversations about with, you know, the therapists and the profs at Acadia and, well, and this, this, this is, yeah. this is extra interesting so for the listeners here. We haven't really fully gone into detail of who you are. Okay. You're a physical therapist. So you were, yeah. you were studying this as you're going into it and you were learning the, the techniques of the time. Right. And it was, what's mm. it, um, it was Merkin. Gabe Merkin was the, yeah. the guy, rest, ice, compression, elevate. So he's the person who came out and said, when you get an injury, ice it to bring down swelling. Right. He then came out later on and said, that's not the best way to go about it. He, he retracted his statement, but it's being taught and utilized all the time. And you, you went against it because of Gary's recommendations, correct? Yeah, that's right. So right around, uh, yeah, so right around in, in 20, in, I think it was in March 2014, when Dr. Merkin kind of reclaimed or, or stepped back on his initial statement. So I think it was uh, the book of sports medicine in 1978, when Dr. Gabe Merkin initially coined the rice term and very common, right? Rest, ice, compression, elevation. The idea was strap the ice on, let's reduce the inflammation. And later on, and I'm not sure exactly if, like if Gary, I know, I know Gary and Dr. Merkin have touched base since. I'm not sure if that was a conversation that initially triggered Dr. Merkin to, to reconsider his stance, mm -hmm. but around the time. So in 2013, when I'd spoken to Gary, read his book, I said, okay, this makes sense. I got the muscle stem. I said, okay, this works. I'm seeing it for myself firsthand. And I decided I wanted to do an honors thesis on, on ice at Acadia. So I was in kinesiology and it was kind of tricky to figure out a study to do where you could have injured athletes and, or injured, injured people at all and subject them to an alternative protocol. Like it wasn't going to happen with the Acadia athletes because we had our protocols that we were using and I wasn't going to come in and be like, no, we're not using those. Like we're going to use my, Guys, my active recovery read method. Write a book. Let's do this. <laughs> exactly. Right. So um, I had a supervisor, Dr. Colin King, who uh, we decided, Hey, we're going to use, we're going to do ice baths rather than ice packs. And we're going to do it following exercise, which is a completely different conversation, right? Like an ice bath, cold water immersion. There's a lot of systemic effects going on, a lot of different systems affected. And it's not quite the same. Although the recovery of the tissues following exercise as compared to following injury is very similar. So in terms of the literature I was reading and the things I was learning about, it was very much the same. And right before I had to present my, my kind of honors thesis proposal, it was, I literally had the, the PowerPoint done and Gabe Merkin came out with his statement in 20, I think in March, 2014, where he's like, look, I was wrong about rice. He goes, I was wrong about rest. You've got to load the tissues mm -hmm. early and often, whatever they're capable of pain-free. And he goes, I was wrong about ice. You don't want to reduce inflammation. 
it's the first stage in the healing process and anything that reduces inflammation is going to delay healing. So I had been in conversations with profs and stuff like that for several months prior to that. And I didn't really have a great grasp on the, on the topic. So I was going into their offices and, and hoping they would educate me, but they were a little bit hesitant because they had been sticking to these protocols for 20, 30 years. And, and they're not going to be quick to reverse their stance either on it. Right. Understandably. So Especially if they're working kind of, university teams too, right? If they're overseeing hmm. the protocols for the teams, winning and losing matters. Exactly. Exactly. So that was kind of, I just thought that was kind of funny. It was, it was kind of perfect timing for me where I could say, Hey, like, this is what I'm testing out. And the guy who came up with rice also is kind of on my side with this. So it, it kind of worked out well with the timing and, uh, and you see it's more popular now. I mean, I was uh, re-listening to one of Gary's podcasts with Eric Cressy the other day, and it sounds like, you know, almost half the teams in the MLB at this point don't ice their pitchers. Um, they, they go with the, the muscle stim route and uh, some guys in the NBA, you know, following severe ankle sprains will do the same thing. And uh, it's uh, yeah, it just makes sense. And we're seeing it a lot more often. I've noticed a huge shift in um, sport performance, uh, basketball specifically in the last decade from like the high top shoes. Some guys don't tape the ankles anymore, right? They're all about the movement and stuff. And, and some guys are nice in the knees after games, like at the pro level and some guys still are, but you know, being a fan years ago, you would never even think anything of that, but then working in fitness and health, you're starting to pick up on some of this stuff here. And then you're seeing some guys who are, Oh, I'm in year 17. You know, you're like LeBron's still kicking it, right? Yep. Some yep. Guys, and some guys got, got tricks. They got stuff that other people are doing. They do, right? And and sometimes too, it's so I want to talk about the ankle stuff in a sec. Um, but just to finish up on the icing thing, I think sometimes too, for example, like we see Kobe with with ice on his knees following games. We see, maybe see LeBron do it too. And I don't know if it's with 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 minor things. For example, maybe some patellar tendinopathy, things like that. Like, I don't know if it's it's a game changer in a situation like that. Like, some guys can ice their knees following each game. It's not going to prevent. It's not going to hinder their performance. Say, like ten percent, um, depending on what they're dealing with. But uh, but in other situations, you know, with significant congestion at a joint following surgery, that's that's when we're talking. You know, like acute injury rehab. That's when we're talking about big differences in terms of applying an ice pack versus choosing a muscle stim. Um, so I think it's, I mean, ice has been around forever. It, it worked when, when, when you get a body, when you get a finger cut off or something cut off, it reduces the metabolic rate of the tissues so it can keep the tissue alive and you can reattach it. Um, and that's why I got a lot of hype originally and because it numbs pain, right. It makes you feel better and it's, and it's super cheap and easy to get. And, and there, Hey, there's, there's definitely companies and industries who are, who are pretty invested in, in certain things, um, certain modalities that, that have ice involved. So I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. I think we've, we're, again, we've, we've, it was 2014 when Gabe Merkin reversed his stance and we still see it really common over basketball players overseas. Like people I see in physio clinics, like pretty consistently, I'll see them and they're like, yep, I've been icing. And I try to explain to them that I don't think it's the end of the world, but I don't necessarily think they need to do it going forward. Um, and in terms of the, in terms of basketball and the, and the ankle, ankle stuff and the shoes. So that was another, another kind of topic that I had to make a decision on following my ankle surgeries, because I, uh, I was told by a surgeon on the East coast following probably eight or nine months following my, 
my, my surgery is that, that I might need a third surgery. Like they might have to redo it. And, uh, and that I would have to wear a, an ankle brace and a high top basketball shoe for the rest of my career. And to me, it just, I can't remember when I made this decision, but to me, it just, it felt like I don't want to rely on some, like some external stability for the support in my foot and ankle, you know, our, our, our foot and ankle, it's a marvel of evolution. It's had thousands, if not millions of years of carefully crafting its structure and it, it is very stable on its own. And I think that over the years, so by the time I came back, even this is probably, you know, this is 12 months following my, my surgeries. I was psychologically, and, and here's the thing too, I was, my ankle was taped when I dislocated it. Like I was taping it every day. Um, I think the research is pretty clear. Hey, the tape is going to last, you know, 10, 15 minutes, and then it's not really doing much. And that being said, I still, sorry, it's so funny. You said that. So we used to have a, the athletic therapist used to always tape us and a lot, all Mm -hmm. the guys would always say, ah, that's too tight. And they would just say, you'll be fine by like five minutes into warm up. You'll be fine. Yeah, exactly. I don't feel it anymore. And and you're right. It stopped working. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. So for me, I, uh, I liked what I did is I psychologically, I still felt like I needed something. So when I came back to play football, following the surgeries, I would shave my, my lower leg. I would get the spray um, onto my leg and then I would have the tape directly on my ankle, just the heel locks and the figure eights. Mm -hmm. So just a little bit of compression on the ankle that psychologically I think made me feel better. And I think taking away the pro wrap and having the spray and the tape directly on your skin, maybe it makes a difference. I don't know. Probably not. Again, I think it was more psychological. I would get it retaped at halftime, mm-hmm. and uh, and I did, and I got both ankles taped just to feel balanced. And on the football field, that felt okay. When I went to basketball and I tried doing the same thing, I was wearing low cut Kobe Bryant nines, and it just didn't feel good. I was like, the the proprioception, the amount of cutting laterally one-legged jumping like football and basketball have their differences in terms of movement patterns. And on the basketball court, it did not feel good to, uh, to tape my ankles after that. So I didn't, I just scrapped the tape at that point. And I had, I mean, I had done a ton of rehab, so my ankle was, was in pretty good shape at that point. And ever since I, I haven't been able to go back to, to a high top shoe or to any sort of taping or bracing because I felt my proprioception was the best with a low top shoe where I could access all my different ankle ranges, my maximal dorsiflexion, different ankle or different angles of eversion. And I haven't been able to go back. If I do try to wear a high top shoe, I'm like, this doesn't feel right. Um, I feel like, Hey, maybe if I'm restricting my dorsiflexion, I might be putting my knee more at risk. And, uh, and yeah, that's, I think, I've got to the point where I'm comfortable now just going and playing. If I'm playing pickup or something like that, like I'll play in band shoes just, uh, just because I'm not, I'm not concerned about it. I have no issues with it. And I really do enjoy the way I feel on the court with, with very minimal support. I feel like that's, that's the way humans were meant to move. And I wouldn't necessarily suggest that to someone uh, mm-hmm. right away. I think you got, you got to work your way up. You really got to build the ankle strength into the tissues over the course of time. And Hey, it might take years because, you know, we spend so much time in shoes as kids and throughout our lives. And that does change the structure of our feet and certainly weakens them over time. And I think you really got to spend time, you know, in some minimalist shoes 
um, for months and years before you're ready to, for example, play basketball and some minimal issues. Yeah, a, a good analogy that, that I like to use sometimes when you're trying to change the formation of a, the body structure is, you know, anyone really old, you know, like you know, parents and stuff, these old ass uncles, and they got big ears, these big noses, right? But they didn't have them big old ears and noses when they were kids, right? The body continually grows over time. Bones form too. That's why you can get braces at age, you know, 60 and you can change your, your structure of your, of your teeth and your mouth. That's bone. You can do the exact same thing with your feet. So when you, when, you, when, we, when I had suggested someone about utilizing minimalist footwear, so it's, it's not going to, it's not going to fix you today. I said, but you know, you are at this age, if you've got decades left to go, things are going to be a lot better, but you can change the formation of your body with the right environment around it. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I think it's called Wolf's Law that yeah. form follows function. And um, that's something that I got to see in real time with, with my ankle as well, because following the surgeries, my, my ankle was more dense in terms of bone. My, my, my body had laid down more bone cells there to add stability during the time when I was playing before. I mean, even after I'd come back, I wasn't necessarily hundred percent, but I was still lacking stability. So my body put extra bone there on my ankle to, to try to compensate. Right. And as well as on my big toe where my medial deltoid ligaments maybe weren't uh, providing me the stability I needed. So I would tend to over pronate and just through that chain, you know, you end up putting more pressure through that big toe joint and started developing a little bit of a bunion, so to speak. Um, but have been able to, to kind of regress that. And I've literally seen my ankle and my, my big toe change in shape over the last like decade. So it's been kind of cool to see. Um, but again, it, I think it's a function of, you know, stability more than anything as your, as your brain is more comfortable with stability of the joints. Um, they it won't lay as much bone there. Mm-hmm. So now um, just for the listeners here, mm-hmm. dual sport athlete, that's a pretty gruesome ankle injury, by the way. I don't think I've ever, besides Connor's scenario, which is a little higher up, but that's a pretty gruesome injury. You, you took it upon yourself to make it more bulletproof. We're able mm-hmm. to come back and play nine total years <laughs> of sports. And now you're signed as a pro athlete over in Armenia for basketball. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That, that's a pretty so, cool story to go from, you know, highs to lows and, and now back up to highs. But are you, you're also working as a, as a physiotherapist, right? Yeah, man. So if I, if I backtrack a little more, so I came back following that ankle surgery for my senior year at Acadia and, uh, and I felt my, again, I don't think my ankle was a hundred percent, but it was pretty close, but I felt the most athletic I'd ever been. And, and that's when I kind of realized like you know, all these limitations we put on ourselves, like it's, it's a lot, it's very much psychological. It's not so much what happens to us. It's kind of like what we do on a daily basis that really matters. And after my, my senior year at Acadia, I wanted to get that metal off my fibula. So I had a third ankle surgery to get that metal removed. And that was, you know, about a two month recovery. And I opted to just return to take, take, take the next year off basically of school. So I had done four years at Acadia, took the next year off to rehab that ankle injury and ended up going to university of Ottawa for physiotherapy school. And towards the end of my first year with the University of Ottawa, actually in the Capitol Hoops game where we're playing Carlton, I, uh, I tore my ACL and my opposite knee with about a minute left in the game. So that was a different experience as well. I had never had any knee issues in the past. 
Um, but you know, just going up, I was going up for a layup and I had partially torn in hindsight, I had partially torn my ACL and a little bit of a contact injury, um, about a week prior. And I do think that there was some compensation as well going on. Like again, early on, I think maybe I, I would tend to jump off my other leg a little bit more frequently when I was still recovering from my ankle surgeries. So I think there was a little bit of extra volume that that right leg was dealing with. So I think that was a contributing factor. And then a little bit of a partial tear. I could feel my, that week doing, doing workouts, I could feel my hamstring tendons, just holding on for dear life, mm -hmm. doing different exercises. And I think that's for people who are listening, if they ever think they might have suffered an ACL tear, sometimes that can be a good indicator because you know, it's your, your ACL, if this is your femur and this is your tibia, your ACL prevents your tibia from sliding forward on the femur and, and the hamstring tendons keep that tibia back in, in place. So the ACL and the hamstring have similar functions. And if you tear the ACL even partially, then your hamstring is going to kick into overdrive to try to compensate for that. And that's something that I felt at the time, but didn't think much of it. But in hindsight, it was a good indicator that my ACL was, was affected. Is there, a, and, is there a test to an individual? You know, and I got the drawers test and something that you would do, but for people who are listening to this, is there a way they could test themselves if they've got some laxity in that area? Good question. Not that, that I can think of. There's a movement you're like, hey, because you, you mentioned, you said like, if you feel like you might've had this, is there mm -hmm. a movement might show up like in the gym? Yeah. Um, the only thing that comes to mind is, is the hamstring tendons kind of like screaming out at you with different hamstring movements. Um, nothing else that, that I can really say, uh, because it's tricky, man. Like even as a physical therapist, when I'm, I've, I've tested a lot of ACLs at this point and, and it's, it's very, it can be very difficult sometimes to determine if, you know, if there's been a, a partial tear versus a full rupture. Um, so I would suggest going to get it checked out if you think something's going on, but, uh, but yeah, so a minute left in the game, I go in for a layup. I feel like my, my femur and my tibia completely just like disassociate from one another. I've never felt anything like it. And, uh, and then I was on the ground for a second and I'm, and that was the first time because at capital hoops for those not listening, you get like maybe nine, 10,000 people out to the game. It's the biggest game in Ottawa for college basketball. And, uh, it's uh, it was my hometown too. So I'm sitting there and, and then it was the first time I realized like, Oh shit, there's a lot of people here. So I'm like, yeah, hey, let's get me up and, and off the court. Cause I don't want people, you know, testing my knee out in front of thousands of people. So I just walked to the back and, uh, and they tested it out. They thought it was a sprain originally. And then what happened was five days later, my, cause it cause generally what you'll see is if, if you have no damage in the knee, the knee will swell up pretty much immediately following an ACL tear, like within an hour, it's going to be, it's going to be swollen. And, uh, mine didn't necessarily do that because I probably had that damage in there prior. So it didn't necessarily go zero to a hundred, but, uh, five days after I woke up and my knee was really swollen. I had pitting edema all the way down to the ankle. I went to see the doctor. He took out two syringes of dark red blood and said, yeah, you gotta, you gotta full rupture in there. So, um, it was interesting to see how that unfolded as well. And, you know, I had surgery a few weeks later by uh, Dr. Chris Rayner, who owns a clinic in Ottawa called Human 2.0, which is where I work now. So that's also, I guess, part of my story where mm -hmm. Chris did my surgery. And uh, that was around the time when my friend Emmanuel Kofi convinced me to get an Instagram account because I was always 
kind of against social media. I, when I was at Acadia, I didn't have social media. I thought it was a distraction and I still do in a lot of ways. Um, but Emmanuel convinced me, Hey, you should get this and you should, you should post about your ACL rehab and things like that. Now that, now that you're in physiotherapy school, thought it would be a good business move for me. Um, just to, to be, to begin to kind of build a brand at the time. So, uh, I decided to do that and I would tag Chris in some of my posts about my ACL rehab and he would see the kind of things I was doing and talking about and about, yeah, about a year in, uh, about a year into physiotherapy school, he offered me a job. Um, whenever I got out, just DM me on Instagram and said, Hey, what are you doing when you're done school? So I thought it was funny how that worked out. And, yeah, especially uh, when you're sitting back and saying it's just a distraction because you're trying to focus on your studies yourself, probably get a job, and then you get a job offer through a DM. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So, shout out to Emmanuel for convincing me about that. Um, and yeah, it's been crazy to see how how that's evolved, not only for me but just for the industry over time. But uh, it really has been beneficial in terms of reaching more people in Ottawa. Um, you know, I work at both human 2.0 and the, the center for strength and athletic development owned by George Chiappa and Clark Flynn. And, uh, that's how I book all my patients and, and clients these days. It's just through Instagram. That's how people, people find me. And, uh, yeah, if, if my account ever got deleted or Instagram went down, I'd be toast. But uh, I thought of that too. Like that, uh, mm-hmm. book and IG went down for that one day. I was scratching my head. I'm like, man, a lot of my business comes from the gram, right? Yeah. So, and I'm like, yeah, how do you build a website? You know, you're trying to go through some of those those things and looking for security and stuff. But you know, it's the world we mm-hmm. live in. Today. Yep. Yeah, exactly. But you do you do virtual consults and you do virtual um, um, training or rehabilitation for people now, right? Because you are in Armenia. What time is it there? Yep. Yeah, that's right. So it's it's a little later here now. I think we're we're nine hours ahead of of Eastern time. And uh, yeah, so I signed a contract out here um, this fall. Um, you know, had. Uh, had a year off after I finished Ottawa U just through the pandemic. It was pretty difficult to get, uh, get professional, professional basketball contracts at the time. Um, it's generally, it's difficult being a Canadian without a passport in another country. Um, like for example, I have a Canadian passport, so I'm competing with other Americans for limited import spots on these teams. Generally teams and leagues will have anywhere from, you know, two to four import spots. Mm-hmm. And uh, it can be difficult if you don't have a passport. Some, for example, some Canadian guys have passports that are they have citizenship in other countries, and and that allows that that's much easier to get mm-hmm. to get contracts that way. Um, but uh, yeah, I was lucky enough to get one get one this year, and yeah, I've been out in Armenia, and it's been fun, man. It's been fun, and and I'm trying to stay in touch with with my patients back in Ottawa um, to to continue to help them with their rehab and continue to write programs for them in terms of their active rehabilitation. And then, yeah, I also do do consults with, with new people who reach out to me, who, uh, who have recently suffered injuries, you know, whether it's an ACL surgery an Achilles surgery or just something more minor or, or, you know, just people who, who want to get out of pain and get in better shape and stuff like that. I'm happy to help them as well. I do when I'm in Ottawa, I do kind of act as half strength coach, half therapist, um, which I know you do a little bit of as well in terms of like the fascial stretch therapy and stuff like that. I think that it has, it's, there's a lot of value in being able to put your hands on a client or a patient and help them with some of that stuff. And then as well with the exercise prescription of things, I think that's kind of the best of both worlds where you're able to help them get out of pain and deal with that kind of stuff. And then also help them achieve their, their performance goals too. When you, um, when you were trying to get signed, 
do you also have on your resume? Oh, I'm also like a physical therapist. <laughs> I, I, I can, I can yeah. ask me after the games to work on them and stuff. And, you know, are you in that back room, like looking over at the other trainer and be like, don't use ice, don't use ice. <laughs> yeah, man. It is something that I definitely tried to try to use as a selling point to, Hey, and, and originally it was like talking to different agents, right? Because in, in basketball, how it works is, I mean, you can reach out to the teams yourself and the GMs and the coaches and stuff like that. And that can work. Um, but it's more common to, to find an agent or an agency that is going to get a market, you know, for you. So I'd reach out to these agencies and be like, Hey man, like if you find me a contract, I will give every player under your agency free virtual physiotherapy, that kind of thing. <laughs> and, um, nobody really bought on that. I don't think they're too concerned about that. That's but, uh, like when you're, when you're legit, just under six feet, right. You got to make up somehow like for ball. It's like, this is how I, this, this makes me six foot three guys. When I throw this. Exactly. Thing. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I need, I need, I need something. I need something to just to get my foot in the door. So um, yeah, but out here, you know, it's uh, and, and here's the thing, right. I've been, I've been working online with guys, a lot of Canadians who play professional basketball Um different countries overseas that I know from guys who I've either competed with or against back in the day um, who, who maybe have suffered injuries and, and they're in high level basketball leagues. Like one guy, for example, Kevin Pangos, um, he played in Russia um, for two years now. He plays for the Cleveland Cavaliers now. And uh, he uh, like, he's in the Euro league. He's in one of the best leagues in the world. And he wasn't necessarily satisfied with the therapy he was getting for an injury he was dealing with. So I would hop on FaceTimes with him and consult with him about, you know, how he can go about rehabbing his injuries and things like that. And, and that's something I do with guys all over the world. So it's really fun to stay in touch with some of these basketball players who are playing in, in different countries and, and trying to help them stay healthy and, and just get through the seasons and stuff like that. And it's something I've been doing here as well for, for some of the guys in my league, which is kind of interesting because it's like I'm competing against you yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm trying to help you stay healthy at the same time. So it's uh but I, I enjoy it, man. I feel like that's really my, that's where my passion lies. And that's where I feel like I can provide people the greatest value in just the world where I can, I can help people do what they love and, and get out of pain and, and stay healthy and pursue their goals. And uh, yeah. Well, it's super inspiring to hear that, you know, you, you had such a promising athletic career. Then you had some tragedy, right? You had some serious uh, um, obstacles. And you took it upon yourself to do something that people don't normally do. Like you went against some of the grain, like with the ice and stuff, you, you anecdotal kind of uh, logic worked on yourself. Now you're, you're pro athlete doing what you love as a sport and doing what you have a passion for at the same time. You're, you're, you're living the dream, my friend. Yeah, man. Yeah, I really am. Um, but but I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you right now, I'll tell you right now. When your career comes to an end, I got a men's league down here, right? I run a little thing called the OBA Orleans Basketball Association, right? And we're always looking. Okay. We're always looking. I'm always looking to, to pick one or two uh, studs up. So when you're when you're done, when you're no longer getting signed on at the pro level, you come down, you play in Orleans with me. We play at the high school. So, <laughs> All right, man, I got you. That sounds good. Uh, but at the same time, I can speak from like a, a strength conditioning standpoint and stuff. Uh, just watching your your Instagram, which is uh, the Fixed Physio, and I'll put that here in the show notes so everyone can see. You have a lot of really good uh, before after results with some of your patients and stuff. A lot of the pro hoopers. Uh, I really love your stuff, and that, that's one of the main reasons why I wanted you to come on here and tell your story and and talk about that. I've got my nationals coming up in uh, 13 weeks for powerlifting. 
eventually I'm going to have to go back to doing full range exercises. So, you know, if you're down in the summer and stuff, maybe I'll, I'll come in for a session with you or I'll just try the virtual thing myself just to get my ankles moving to the way they're supposed to move. Oh man, hundred percent. We definitely got to link up when I'm back in Ottawa this summer. That's the plan. I think I should be back at some point in March. So I'll pay you a visit. We'll get some work in hundred percent. Love it. Appreciate that. Project Fitness Podcast. Thanks you so much for coming on today. Again, love your story. If anyone's listening right now, the fixed physio, I'm going to put in the show notes there on IG. Uh, give Sean a follow uh, as well. You get a website through your link tree. So we'll have that in the show notes too. And just lastly, you know, how were your stats your last game? How'd it go? So last game I had my career high in points. I think I had 42 points. Um, and yeah, so hoping to keep that going. We didn't get the win, unfortunately, but, uh, but yeah, we're, 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 we're getting better as a team, John, and, uh, hoping to keep, uh, yeah, keep, keep the ball going in the net. No, Joel Embiid, uh, they're talking about him being MVP of the NBA. I think he only dropped 26 last night. Sean, you got right over 40. Throw that out there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not quite the same level. That's for sure. So doing what I can out here. Anyway, man, thank you so much for coming on Project Fitness Podcast, and I hope to see you sooner than later. Hey, thank you, Chris. I'm a big fan of the podcast, man. Definitely have tuned in to, to a bunch of episodes in the past and uh, really grateful to have the opportunity to come on. Awesome. Appreciate you.